here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 104.4 FM in Hermanus. My next guest is Fasia Hassan. You may remember the name vaguely, but if you remember Fees Must Fall, that name will definitely ring a bell. She was born in 1993, currently a lawyer, politician, and previously a student activist. She was an SRC leader during the Fees Must Fall protest at the University of Wits and a law student at the time as well. And in 2019... Only at 25, let that sink in, she became the youngest member of the Gauteng Provincial Legislature and winner of the Student Peace Prize. She joins us now on the line. A very good afternoon, Fasia. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Wow. Um, I, you know, I don't know whether in, in your dreams you ever imagined that when you were fighting and you're in the streets, when you were walking the streets and shouting for free education, you'd be sitting at the legislature. I don't know if that was your plan, but we are here now. And so much has changed since you, you took that office, uh, that office position just uh, last year, in fact. How much? Yeah, I, I mean, it, yeah, it seems like a decade ago. I mean, <laughs> um, had things not changed so much, uh, we would be there where we're still celebrating the fact that you're the youngest member of, 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 of uh, the provincial legislature. But it's, it's quite a heavy burden, isn't it, at the moment with all that's happening right now? Exactly. Look, it was definitely not the plan. And, and like you said, it feels almost like a lifetime ago um, that we were sworn in, even though it was a year. Mm. And I know the previous guest, you even said, you know, the world has fundamentally changed um, since then. But yes, I think there is a greater burden. Um, I think that in addition to being, you know, when you're the youngest in these spaces, mm. it's there's extra, there's something extra that you have to prove. And I think you also carry a generation on your back. So you, we're very cognizant of the fact that if it doesn't go well, they're going to use this argument, you know, for the next however many years as to why young people shouldn't enter into the space. Um, and I think that's why, yeah. you know, myself and others push ourselves so hard. And, our, you know, the reason why we really go out of our way to produce the highest quality of work, because we're very cognizant of the fact that it's not just us. And then, of course, you're finding your feet, you're getting into it, and then you're hit by a global pandemic mm. that no one really knows how to deal with. Mm. So in addition to still learning and dealing with the pressures that come from being a young person, but a young woman as well, you also have this COVID-19 thing. So it is overwhelming. It is quite a, quite a pull to swallow. For see, there's a lot going on at the same time, and, and it's easy to get overwhelmed because all of that's, that's happening at the moment is important what's the battle you're choosing? Right. So a few, a few of them. The one is I sit in three portfolio committees, mm-hmm. education being one of them, but it's very much focused around basic education. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, during Christmas will be fought for access to higher education, yeah. but we are very well aware of the fact that there was a crisis in basic education. Okay. So looking at um, changing of policy, but also around centering young students and young scholars I'm really in the focus. Uh, one of the things that I think is shocking um, that used to happen before is that we do oversight visits and no one would think to speak to the learners about what's going on in the school. Mm. And when I got there, I was like, well, "Why? We, let's, let's speak to the learners. Let's see what's going on. Um, so already we're starting to see a slightly different approach. But the other focus that we, that, that we have there is around youth unemployment. Um, and that also we know is an acute crisis. We have an unemployment problem. But young people in particular, and the stats, this is what's scary, the stats are showing us 
that independent of education level, young people have the highest unemployment rate mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. So even if you have a degree, even if you have a yeah. PhD, yeah. it's so hard to find a job. And that's not something we can fold our arms about and pretend is something that's just going to fix itself. Well, I mean, it's tough because it was, in a way, quite simple for you to say government, government, government. You now are government. <laughs> so when young people say to you, well, we don't have jobs and, and we, we were under the illusion that if we got an education, we are going to find a job. What do you say? Well, that's the crazy thing. Um, entering into this space, I think there was a big part of me in particular who felt there's going to be a lot more that we can influence and change. Mm. And also just maybe to clarify, uh, when we're in legislature and parliament, we actually are not government or the executive. What it is is we play oversight mm-hmm. over the work of government. Mm-hmm. We do lawmaking, we do oversight, we focus on public participation. But there's a huge, huge role that we have to play in influencing the policy um, and really ensuring that when government comes to the table and when they present, and one of the things I always ask them is, what is the impact on young people? How many jobs are we creating? How many um, empo- uh, empowerment opportunities are we creating? But I agree that there's a huge sense of, I, I got an education because I thought I would get a job. Um, and that's something that we really need to, you know, push along. So yeah. there's a few things, right? What we're trying to do is ensure that every project that comes across we're putting a focus on youth unemployment um, and we're putting a focus not just on giving people temporary jobs. The long-term goal is to give people skills and ensure that they're in a long-term, you know, permanent position so that it's not just jumping from one place to the next. Mm. You've just said that you, you influence policy and I quite like that because then you tell me, sitting where you are sitting, what changes are urgently required from a policy point of view to address the two things that you are focusing on, basic education and youth unemployment? Right. So we need to look at, and this is also something where we're adapting it already, but I'll give you what I what yeah. I think. Before COVID-19, one of the big things we were doing was looking at the drivers of the economy. Mm. So one of the big drivers of this economy is agriculture and, for example, in Gauteng, um, the, the car motor industry, mm-hmm. right, creating or putting together cars. And what we were then starting to do is start up these schools of specialization that's even on a basic education level yeah. where young people can start to specialize in the skills that the economy actually needs. Mm. So we're giving you a skill and an education that there's demand for at the end of it. So we're not just training people um, for, for jobs that don't exist. But of course, in a, in a current COVID-19 <laughs> perspective, the game has changed mm-hmm. and we now need to look at other opportunities to create jobs for young people. One of the big things and one of the big interventions is likely, not confirmed, but likely to be infrastructure development to try and, you know, kickstart the economy in some ways. And we're trying to see how we can support the small businesses that are owned by young people and also provide entrepreneurship opportunities. So we're very cognizant also of the fact that we need to be job creators mm. and not job seekers. But it's easier said than done, right? It's not just about, okay, here, here's a business plan. We also have to provide the funding. We also have to provide the step-by-step support. Now, tell me what this time has taught you, because exactly as you you were saying it, you know, there was a lot of collaboration amongst basic education, particularly in Gauteng and and motor industry, for instance, a lot of collaboration, specialized schools and so on. And then suddenly COVID happened and those big companies were threatening to leave until they decided to quickly change their model to do things like ventilators and so on. But you, you suddenly had a model change overnight and yet there was all of this plan that fitted a specific model. 
what I've learned the most, and it's also on a personal kind of thing, mm. we have to be adaptable. You know, people talk about fourth IR and they talk about the job market 20 years from now. And one of the big things that if you read about it, you'll see is the fact that we need to be flexible and we need to be able to adapt our skills and everything that we're learning for the current situation. Mm -hmm. And if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that rigidity is an enemy of progress. We need to be able to be a lot more flexible and a lot more open to new ideas, innovative ideas. And some of those ideas will work and some of them won't. But that is the nature that in which we find ourselves, even in healthcare, right? The yeah. things that we knew about COVID-19 two months ago are somewhat different to what we know now. And uh, what it's showing us is that there are no hard and fast rules. Mm. There are no ultimate truths. So when people say to you, oh, you have to work in the office to be productive, mm. we're finding that people working from <laughs> home are actually working longer hours and are being somewhat more productive because of that. So it's also just somewhat reinforced what we've been saying as young people. Yeah. And I'll give you a very tangible example. When we entered into the legislature, I put forward these ideas around taking public participation beyond just a community hall, making it more accessible through, for example, Facebook Live, Instagram Live, Twitter, you know, mm. trying to take it to social media. Mm. And when the idea was presented, initially people were like, oh, we're not sure, we're not sure, but we'll talk about it, we'll have meetings. COVID-19 has now forced the legislative sector to change how we do our work. Now you're seeing online meetings that are a lot more accessible. Now you're seeing public participation that's a lot more accessible. When eight months ago, people were not sure about whether we should or shouldn't do it. So COVID-19 in some ways has fast-tracked a lot of the internal work that we were trying to do to change things. Um, and has also in some ways, in theory, created a little bit more efficiency in our work. I mean, there are a couple of things there because one of the things that I was also thinking about was I'm hoping that it's also shown you that we've got to go beyond um, surface level solutions and also think about self-reliance because as soon as the motor industry was at the brink of leaving South Africa and closing and shutting down its industries here, we would have been left with an egg in our face because we were so reliant on outside partners to make our dreams happen. So I thought that's something to think about. But also, I suppose it's also making you reflect on, as you said, you know, you are now thinking about meetings that are happening virtually, whereas uh, they were not possible before. That balance, Fasia, because there is that and the reality of in that push for the future, we need to be careful not to leave others behind because there is that's it's a difficult South Africa. You know, South Africa is 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 in its inequality. It's showing us flames, right? So they we can move very quickly forward and and also at the same time leave others behind. Mm, you're quite right. I think part of this journey is that it's also exposed the fault lines in the system. So while we do, you're quite right, having these virtual meetings, there are some communities that don't even have access to electricity. That's it. So you can't even talk about the third eye. Can't IR even plug the phone. Can't even plug the phone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. But what it's also shown us is that even we knew this before, but even more so now, we cannot leave anyone behind. Yeah. And what we need to also acknowledge in the space of moving forward, that it's also about, and I mean, this is a conversation I've had with some other people mm. around um, the internet, for example, being actually a public good and about how we can support, you know, Umama on the side of the street mm. is selling vegetables. Mm. It can take her business to the next level. Yeah. So it's also around not just putting our heads in the sand and saying we're not going to move forward, but ensuring that when we do move forward, like you said, 
nobody is left behind. And we're very cognizant of that. Um, I think in many ways, the work of the Competition Commission and the work of these different organizations in that, re- in that regard um, have been able to move us forward. But we, I, I fully agree that there's no situation where we can pretend that everybody is on the same level, that everybody is yeah. ready to move into the next phase. So, so, and this is not, I mean, this is not a, a directly at you. It's a, you, you now represent a, a bigger, a bigger portion of, of people I'm talking about. Is that I sometimes feel though, we, we are also along the way missing opportunities. You know, you speak about the Gogwa that sells vegetables and how we could take this opportunity to empower them using technology and so on because the moment now forces us all to buy into that. But we're not doing that, are we? We're not, we're not, we're not showing our innovation as the moment requires. We, we think we are, but we're not quite doing it. So there are industries that, that now have had to shut their doors because we were not innovative enough, quickly enough. And your take on that, as a young person, I think you hear what I'm saying. But, but it's I, not... I, I yep. definitely do. Um, and in many ways, I share those frustrations mm. because, you know, we're part of a generation that's a little bit more we're more willing to take a risk, mm-hmm. right? We're more willing to say, well, let's try this thing out, mm. you know, let's see if it can make things better and easier. Um, and the thing that I thought about when you were talking about bringing innovative solutions to the ground and to our people, mm. um, you know, in, in, in obviously I always speak for cooking because that's yes, what I'm learning yes, about and sure. what I am in. Yeah. But we are, in theory, running out of enough land for agriculture. Yeah. So one of the things we're trying to do on a, on a small-scale level for small-scale farmers is introduce what we call agri-tech. So mm-hmm. that's technology for agriculture. Mm. So what we're saying is that if you can't grow millet, that's not a problem. We will give you the, the technology to be able to process it, mm-hmm. right? So that when you sell it, you're actually selling it at a higher value mm-hmm. and we're able to, in theory, bring people up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the truth is also it's two things. The mm-hmm. thing is, as a society, mm-hmm. generally in South Africa, mm-hmm. I think we are still a lot more old school. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't want to change. It doesn't mean we don't want to move forward. It's that I think we're in this moment where there's a tussle between young people and the older generation. And it's not just in politics. You're seeing it in corporate. You're seeing it in all of these different sectors where young people are saying, we've arrived, we're here, this is taking too too slow, Mm. we're not seeing change fast enough, etc. We need to do X, Y, Z. And the old guard, generally speaking, are saying, well, we've been doing it this way for many years, we know better. And like I said, this is not about politics. Mm. I've even had other friends in other spaces where there's a little bit of this you know, this clash. Yeah. Um, and until we can find each other, we're going we're gonna to treat each other as the enemy, when in reality, we're both trying to take South Africa to the next phase. Well, what's important is that you're representing the voice of people who have been feeling left out for a long time. And so we appreciate that. And I don't think it's going to be easy at all for us here. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. Yeah, um, no, if, if, if I had known what I know now, <laughs> maybe a year or two ago, but, I think I would have taken uh, a slightly different approach to no, everything. No, no, stay like there. Stay one. there. We need you there because um, it's important to have that representation. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to us, Fazia, and happy Youth Day. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Thank you, Fasia Hassan, who is a Gauteng Provincial Legislature member, the youngest at that. And uh, she was a student leader during FISMA's fall. I don't know if you remember her. She was the SRC leader at the time. Well, she's now a politician and she's also a lawyer. And just getting her perspective, she's 25, getting her perspective on on her role in society at the moment and and how young people are seeing the world around them. That's that's our entire conversation today. Just touching base with young people around.
around the world, particularly South Africans, and, and how they see the world right now as we celebrate Youth Day on the 16th of June today.